shall we start, Ian Cleary? Oh, man, man, uh, that, that is totally up to you. I've got a thousand things that I, that I could. Randomly pick one and let's start there. What's, what's top of mind for you at the moment? Uh, I, I'm buzzing with excitement really on um, just where, where the research is going with chronic pain, chronic fatigue. It is just, uh, it's just so exciting. So that, that's, that's where I live and breathe. That's, that's kind of my mm. professional space, but it's, um, yeah, it's a buzz. It, it's something that's so horrific for people and mm -hmm. their lives just grind to a halt. And, you know, just getting really interesting insight that allows people to get out of a model of uh, management and, and the disease model and, the, you know, the broken personal model and, and give insight to, and hope to, uh, to make radical change. That, that's exciting. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I get to, to work in that space. So, um, yeah, that's, that's groovy. That, that's, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. It's it, it's interesting talking about pain because I, I, the language is difficult. I find like we are used to talking about treating pain or pain management, and I do work in the hypnotic space with pain, and I still struggle to find appropriate language just to communicate to people what this experience of pain is, how it can be different, and what the path forward can be. Is yeah. uh. Is language a big part of, of what you're doing at the moment? Well, so much a big part of it. There's the, the model of pain that uh, um, people often work with is the biopsychosocial model of pain. So uh, last year, the, the peak body of pain is this International Association of Study of Pain. They, they, released or updated a definition of pain and uh, and they they took about it being influenced by biology and social and, and culture and you know all, all these factors uh, and uh, one lecture that I was part of was talking about well it really should be the biopsychosocial linguistic model of pain mm. that, that that is how important the words we use and the concepts that we, we form um, uh, are integral to the experience of pain. So, and, and that's probably where our worlds, you know, your and my worlds overlap massively because just the words, the languages, the, the, mm -hmm. the concepts. Um, yeah, and I, I, um, I have a, a, a concept that people get stuck in their metaphors. They, they, they have this metaphor, they get this concept and they're so stuck in it and, and sometimes changing their language is a path out of that stuckness mm. you know, they, can, they can change their concepts so yeah language massive i think it's a massive part of it and, and it's something that we we can have deliberate conscious control over or we can learn to have deliberate conscious control over it so there's a way in that it's it's a way in to, to influence this experience of pain mm. Yeah. I, I have found just in clinical practice, whether it be with pain or, or anything, it's often that perception that a person has that 
there isn't a way in to to take whatever the next step is to get the resolution that they want and in the i i don't have a lot of uh volume of work with pain uh, which is really interesting knowing that hypnosis and that whole idea of learning new things and uh, being able to relax and improve sensation and understand the difference between what is felt and what is felt about what is felt and what is thought about what is felt. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. So it's, it's, it's interesting that being a, being a hypnotherapist, sometimes you don't attract the people that could benefit from hypnotherapy. Yeah. Um, One of the issues there is our cultural understanding of pain says it's this. So who do I go to to fix this? And it's mm -hmm. often these people over here. And now that we're having a you know, very different understanding of pain, then that that's going actually, it's over here. <laughs> these sorts of things can also influence the experience of pain. Um, there, there was a statement I heard recently from someone that I would say is a very high up in the, you know, the, the field of pain and, and pain research and education. And his concept was, we know what works for chronic pain. We know what sorts of things are associated with great success with chronic pain. However, until you understand pain, those techniques make no sense. So if someone has an idea that their, their pain experience is because of a broken bit, I'll, I'll use back pain, like by far the number one chronic pain on the planet, back mm -hmm. pain. Uh, you know, it, it is head and shoulders. <laughs> head and shoulders above you know, the other forms of chronic pain. Uh, most people have this concept that it is a, a slipped disc. Or, or a bulging disc or a, or a, a pinched nerve or something like that. Yeah. So there's a structural issue there. Uh, and they, they're stuck in that model of understanding that it's a, it's a physical thing that is the cause of pain. So once you have that model, then instantly that, that sends you down a path of, well, how do I fix this? Mm -hmm. And now pain sciences will say statements like nothing in the body can cause pain. Now, that statement makes mm. no sense if you're in that old model of thinking. It's like you're insane or the fists come out and go, how dare you? How, how dare, dare you tell me I am not feeling pain? Exactly. Exactly. Or, that, or, it's or like, even the bigger one that I am not in pain. Yeah. Yeah, you're telling me I'm making this up. You're telling me I'm, I'm crazy. You're going, no, no, there's a, we've moved on from that concept of pain. Yes. This is what we're saying pain is. Um, and, and the great thing is it, it opens up choices that some people get so angry <laughs> when, when they, they hear words and their brain interprets it as you're saying, I'm making it up or you're saying I'm crazy. And I'm going, mm -hmm. No, I'm saying that you've got all of these choices and none of them are even implying that you're crazy. No. That, that's the beauty of the, the sort of this updated model of pain. It, it gives people choices mm. where, they, where they had none except management, which were really, you know, the management options are push through 
you know, pay the consequences or avoid and your life shrinks. Mm. They're, they're kind of the options offered to people to push through or avoid, which mm. that, that, uh, that is fight or flight, run away from it. Mm-hmm. And there is so many other options, um, but the options come when someone is ready to take a step back, unlearn what they, what they had previously learned. And I think that is the biggest obstacle. People mm. have a concept and I sort of offer this information and they add it on top of an old model or discount it because it doesn't make sense. And the journey forward is often throwing out like throwing out that old model yeah, uh, and then understanding this, this new model of pain. And it's, it, it is such a difficult thing. You, you've just reminded me I'm uh, a very novice bedroom bass player. This, this does connect up. I'm not on some crazy tangent here. This is about learning. And I'm always searching for someone who can explain musical theory in a practical sense to me. And some people are so excited by music theory that they go off and start explaining how modes work and how scales work and why this interval works and how you can listen. Stop. Too far. Too much information. Let's take it a step back. And I found this uh, bass teacher whose name escapes me. I want to say Anthony Wellington. And if I've gotten that wrong, I'm terribly sorry. But he was explaining this method of finding a pattern on the fretboard and then it, it's a repeating pattern and when you learn this pattern you can understand all of the modes which in musical theory people it blows people's minds it, it's it's kind of hard to get until you get it and they say in bass like until it's under your fingers and then you can actually use it but what he said was i want you all to disregard everything you know about modes just listen to what I'm saying and don't try and reconcile what I'm saying with what you already know. And he said, I'll know when you're doing that because you'll be doing the reconcile, you know, the reconciling phase of, Hmm. Yeah. Don't do that because you can't fit this model on top of your pre-existing model. They clash. And then you'll yeah. be trying to work out how to fit in this new information based on that old framework and therefore you're doing work you don't need to do. So let's just assume for a moment that it's not that that other stuff's wrong, but let's move it to the side so we can pour this new information in. And there was one person in the audience who wasn't a bass player and she was sitting there and he was watching her and she got it all immediately because she had no fundamental understanding or preconception of what a mode was and how modes worked in music and how they worked on the bass guitar. And that's, that's the rub. How do you get people to take this knowledge on without them trying to fit it into their preconceptions? That's the, I think that's where the challenge is for everything, like all kinds of wellness. I can remember back to when I owned a gym and I would talk to people about nutrition. After a while, they get in, they get moving, they do some stuff, but ultimately they need to eat better because that's where it comes from. There's your fuel, there's your... Uh, body weight there's a whole bunch of stuff there's your energy there's your uh, how you feel physically and it almost became about religion <laughs> the way people are attached to the foods they eat and then what's told to them in the media and 
at that point by nutritionists and dietitians who had a different understanding of the science than we way out there uh, explorers of nutrition had. And again, it was flying in the face of what they understood. Like if you said fats are okay, people would be like, no, but if I eat fat, I get fat. Mm. How do you remove that and put the new information in? Is there, is there a way that you do that? Or is it just you're putting the information out there about pain and then the people that are ready can pick it up? That's, well, I think I, I put something out there. And if someone is curious, Mm. There's something about curiosity that I often use the term childlike curiosity, which kind of like going back to that, you know, just fresh and yeah. So I put stuff out there and if someone's curious, then they make contact and, and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm meeting them where that, where are they at? (laughs) Mm. And, And because one bit of information to one person will be the, the aha moment, like boom. It's just it, and and everything, everything falls apart or, or comes together. Yet that same bit of information to another person, you have just reinforced further stuckness. <laughs> so uh-huh. it's it's a it's a conversation. It's exploring their model of the world, and okay, do we need small tweaks, or or is there something more? Is there something bigger? That, that needs to happen uh and it's touching on how how we form beliefs and how we change beliefs and um, and that's that's playing out at the moment across the world where it's not about information there's, there's other elements at play like we, we we make decisions on an emotional level and we fool ourselves that we've got it all figured out and there are these confirmational biases that kick in and so we're just more and more convinced that that we are right and uh and it's fascinating to see it play out in the world but it's you know the consequences of misinformation or they're, they're real real world consequences and, and that's that is the, the arena that i'm playing in as well they're, they're real world consequences when someone is stuck and some people are so committed to an old, an old way that that's it. It's it, so there's, I'm wasting my time and energy here in, in this one area. Cause, cause what we know is if people will defend their beliefs, like they defend their body, like the brain goes on attack mode uh, and that's it. So there needs to be a curiosity. A, a curiosity to kind of go, where am I off here? Where, where, I know I think I'm right. I know I think I'm right. But some healthy skepticism directed itself. Where am I biased? Where am I off? Almost assuming mm. that you are as a starting point. It's a good starting point. I think it's essential. I, I think, yeah, I think certainty is foolish. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. And which is, which is really interesting because a lot of people find security in certainty or they feel that they're more secure when they have certainty in a world that is chaotic and random and 
maybe it's it's not beneficial to have that certainty because it's almost it's almost as if you take a position and then you have to as you say you have to defend that position against all intrusions and offenses yeah yeah I, you know the, the the humans love certainty but we love we also love variety as well we, mm. i do anyway um not the yeah. only one not the yeah. only one and 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 um i you know couple of times a year I find myself in, in conferences like pain conferences where you know these are the the you know the leaders the heavy hitters that you know the people that are doing that the on the ground research and, and you hear them talk and there are people they, there are people that I would put them up and go they know their stuff you know that they are the authorities and you hear them going this is what we think you know there's a humility in that that in the world of science it's, it's amazing that people often say science is arrogant and science is i i think that's not the science that i see i see these mm. people are on the cutting edge of understanding how things are going and there's not certainty there um there's kind of people going i'm not sure this is what we think I, you know mm. i'm open to other ways uh, and I, I think that yeah let's test it let's test it and, and then suddenly the something we thought was close to the truth is shown to be not uh, mm -hmm. and then there's a like a, a fight that goes on and then we move forward and uh yeah so i think as individuals we that certainty uh i think we do ourselves a disservice often to be too certain we, we miss options we, we lose choice when we're too certain mm. yeah wild tangent no that's beautiful that's a beautiful tangent it, you just reminded me of sitting with my son will who you know uh, and talking about being open to learning new things in order to progress which is a deep and meaningful conversation for a 13 year old boy and his dad and i was telling him this there's an old zen story about i think it was an emperor who was massively devoted to Buddhism and spent money on pagodas and championed the cause of Buddhism and the spread of Buddhism and went to all these different scholars to learn about Buddhism. And there was one master that pretty much said, I don't want to see you, even though this emperor could have pretty much had his head if he had wanted to. But the master kept saying, no, I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to see you. Eventually he relented and saw the emperor and the emperor comes in with all of his bells and whistles and, the master pours the tea and pours the tea into the cup and it just keeps filling and filling and spilling everywhere. And eventually the emperor says, master, the, the cup is full and it's spilling everywhere. <laughs> and he says, this is like your mind. How can you expect to learn what Buddhism truly is when it's so full? I love that story. I come back to it all the time because it's like the, when you say, you know, I know then I, I, there's no room for me to take any other opinion in. Yeah. Yeah, nice. It, it's just, it's so, it's, it's beautiful, flowery language. Like everyone loves a story. And apparently that's actually a historical story. I don't, I don't know if, if it is, if it's not, it's a bloody good story anyway. Sometimes these are the ways that you can get around people's defenses by sort of talking over here in, in a, in a metaphor that, <laughs> 
that they might actually, and that, that might shift the metaphor that, as you said, they're stuck in. Yeah. Yeah. I think we learn through stories, we learn through metaphors and it's a mm. nice way in for, for the, yeah, to get the brain to recategorize something, to learn something new. You were saying at the get go that we understand what pain is now, ah. but, but, uh, people can't accept that unless there's some learning done at the start. Well, probably, that, do I, I understand that correctly? If I said that, I will take that back. I think we, we have a different understanding of pain that okay. better fits, better fits what we're saying. And so do we understand pain? That's confidence. That's arrogance. So I sort of pull back from that statement, but the old model of pain, you know, it goes back to Descartes. Well, it goes back further to Descartes. But Descartes, uh, Rene Descartes, the drunken fart. If you're a Monty Python fan, um, if you're not, I'm an idiot. For, for that's all right. Everyone um, should be a Monty Python fan, in my opinion. But let's not let's let's not put a stake in the ground. Um, Descartes wrote a famous paper on pain and. and made pain a thing and it starts here it starts in the body and it runs up the the, the body to the brain and, and the brain's job in that was to pull the, the leg back or pull the hand back from the fire or the, the blade or something and and we so that was an attempt it was an attempt at that point to explain pain in what in some yeah, philosophical exactly. kind of sense yeah exactly well he was cutting bodies open he was finding tubes you know he was seeing it was running by uh -huh. hydraulics all over the place so yeah, it yeah, wasn't yeah. just a he was a you know hands-on scientist and he came up with a model and um it lasted because it was a model that worked it, it kind of worked well enough and, and it explained mm -hmm. a lot of what we saw when you stand on a, a nail you, you pull your leg back so the model worked mm -hmm. and we fine-tuned it and we started to go well, they're not tubes they're nerves so you know yeah, pain runs up nerves and, and and so we were just building and building on this old model of pain because it, it kind of worked. And Descartes mm -hmm. was the guy that came up with this concept of things are either physical or you know, mental and so spirit and not real. And so he took us on that path of you know, dualism that you know, we're still very much stuck in. We, we, we love to categorize things as, is this physical or is this psychological? Mm -hmm. and that, that, that that's a model that dates back to to descartes at least it's like an either or kind of proposition yeah it, it's a model of how you know the how humans operate uh we're still stuck in that it's it's mm -hmm. it's how we categorize things instantly we go well this is physical this is psychological so we, we built on that model we built on that model it was making sense it was, it was making sense well enough to to keep progressing with this model but it didn't explain all pain. It, it, it didn't explain some pain. So it was, it, was a lot, it was being challenged from the from the edges, but it just sort of hung on for long enough. But 1960s um, was a, a turning point where uh, out of Oxford, you know, people started to go, well, the brain is playing a bigger role here than we think. What's going on? And so 1960s, there was this, this beginning of this, this um, this revolution because it didn't explain things like hypnotherapy. It didn't explain how someone could have surgery with no drugs, mm. no medication, 
the body's still being cut open and, and injured and blood's going everywhere, but the, pain, the, you know, the person is alert, um, awake, and going, I, I, there's no experience of pain here. So that model of pain didn't explain that. It, it didn't explain an amputee that doesn't even have a body part, yet can still feel pain out in space. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? So the model kind of worked, this, you know, this Descartes model worked well enough, but there are all these things that just didn't fit. And, and we've all had experiences of yeah, finding a bruise and going, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> I've got an injury here, but, but no pain. And so um, it, it didn't explain the full picture of what was going on. It, it worked well enough. And the unfortunate bit about that model is if you didn't have an obvious injury, yet you were saying, I'm experiencing pain, we go back to that old model that says things are either physical or psychological. So you've got mm -hmm. these, these group, groups of people that are experiencing real pain and we're seeing it through this old model of the world and they're going, well, where's the broken bit? No broken bit. Ah, crazy person. And so you've got all of these people that have just been hard with that, that historic mindset of if there's not a broken bit, there's something suspicious going on here. Mm. But it, it, it didn't explain, it didn't explain pain. It kind of explained some pain. And the beauty of the new model is it does explain that without resorting to you're crazy. It's going, look, this, this is, this makes sense. Uh, it better explains pain. So a new model has to explain, you know, our, our experience better than the old model. And so the current understanding of pain does a better job of explaining all of those pain experiences. Okay. Um, is it, is it true? Is it, is it correct? I don't know. I don't know, but it does a, a far better job of explaining pain without going down the path of you're crazy. It opens up options. That, that, that's the really exciting bit of it. It's, it gives people options. And I, I, I see people that have been in pain or fatigue or anxiety or depression or all these other, other states as well that, that also have gone in that same model turning their lives around and, and no longer you know, going from bed bound you know, for a decade sometimes to fit or you know in pain that was you know, stopping them from living a life to gone they're living a, a rich and full life so that that's why i'm excited about pain it just feels like a a, you know, a great field to work in giving people options giving people their lives back yeah, but it, but it does require people to unlearn, unlearn all this stuff that's been inherited, you know, belief systems that have been inherited culturally down the line from everyone from Descartes to our own parents and our own schooling and you know, where, where our brain picks all this stuff up. Uh, so it's time to ditch the inheritance <laughs> to, to take on something new. That's so cool. It's interesting, this, this whole idea of, of pain. I, I got a phone call from one of the parents at school yesterday thanking me because my boy Will had comforted another boy who'd fallen out of a tree and saddle fractured his wrist 
which would not be the most comfortable experience. So this, how old was, how old was this child? He would be eight, probably eight. So quite a bit younger than, than Will, who's 13. And Will used some of the techniques that I've used with him, just calming and relaxation techniques, just basically mindful breathing, uh, some ideas of you don't have to pay attention to those thoughts and feelings if you don't want to. And he wouldn't have used those words, of course. And this boy who was screaming in agony in the sick bay, all of a sudden stopped crying and was okay, whatever okay is at that point. I'm sure he wasn't having a great time of it because his wrist was broken. But it's just amazing that a, a boy who's feeling severe acute pain because of a physical trauma very quickly can change his perception or experience of that pain just with a couple of words from a 13-year-old boy who's not trained. You know, just kind of said the right things, I guess, at the right time. And so it speaks to some really interesting, uh, I don't know what the word would be there, stuff, let's say stuff, so I don't go looking for a, a word in a thesaurus somewhere, that even an eight-year-old boy who doesn't have all of this belief structure and education about pain, maybe that's why he was able to sort of, shift so quickly because he doesn't have that story yeah well um the definition of pain that was updated last year one of the the key points was through our life experiences we learn pain we learn mm. it it's, it's a learned response and we get you know, that's a key bit so our upbringing, our experience, you know, what our, what our loved ones, what our caregivers, parents, social group, their response to the moment is part of how we learn. <clears throat> we learn. And one easy way maybe to um, understand this new model of pain is that pain is not about damage. It's not about damage. Pain is about your brain's protection. It's protecting you from damage. So it's an experience generated in the brain to protect you from damage. And it's, you, you learn when and how much. And so that the brain is having to answer this critical question, am I safe? That's at the heart of it, am I safe, am I safe? And so if, if a boy has fallen out of a tree and, and, and his brain is, is taking in incoming information from the body that's that, that's not pain it's not pain coming from the body it's just information about a change that's occurred in a, in a body part he's also taking in the the, the mood the reaction what, of what everyone else exactly and this is an older boy this is an authority figure that is calm and is saying it's going to be okay and so that influences how the brain answers that question am i safe so I would argue that he's that what's happening there is it's not that the the young boy's perception of pain is being influenced by the by Will's words. Mm -hmm. His experience is different because of Will's words. His his doing that protective response in a different way, thanks to to Will's words, and it's it's the words, it's the environment. So. If someone breaks a leg at home, am I safe? There's, 
your brain's trying to go, there's something here that, that needs attention. And so there's a level of protection that, you know, it gets your attention. That's the whole point of painting. It gets your attention. And so there's, there's a level, let's say it's up here. Mm-hmm. If you have that exact same biological incident, like a, a break or something, but it happens way out in the wilderness where, where you are two weeks from a hospital, Mm-hmm. that level of demanding your attention by turning on pain might actually get in the way of you getting help. And so the brain's sort of constantly taking in all of this and go, okay, well, let's get to a hospital. So it might be less of an experience of pain. And if you have that same experience at the hospital door, you only need a little bit of a nudge to get inside. And so your brain is taking into account all of that to try to figure out how much, where, now, all, all that's going behind the scenes. This, this is all very unconscious processing that, that's happening. And, um, and my work shows that you, know, you explain that to people and then you look at all of the choices that you do have just to get the brain to understand uh, you're safe. And, and a part of that is teaching people what pain is and and there's some really amazing research that says the more someone understands pain the less they hurt because it's not as scary it's it's not a feedback loop on itself where you're getting scared about your own pain if you can understand pain you're kind of going okay thanks brain thank you thank you it doesn't mean that i'm damaged it just means that my brain is picking up some some threats here it also explains why if someone has a, had, a, had childhood trauma, for example, and, and we know the, the links between childhood trauma, there's a big association between childhood trauma um, and adult chronic pain conditions. Oh, wow. In, in the old model of the world, we kind of go, ah, crazy people. This, this, this is not real pain. This is, you know, this is just crazy people putting it on. But with a better understanding or more updated understanding of pain, we can just go, well, childhood trauma just influences that question, am I safe? That's all. It's, it's, it's real pain. It's just influencing that, the brain's perception of safety. And so, of course, you've got a system that's going to be overprotective because it's, it's had a, an experience or a, a range of experiences that is influencing that um, that pain experience. There's there's lots to it, but we have we have choices. Yeah, that's yeah. We we, we can't turn back the clock, but we can rewire the brain to, to understand that it's safe. Yeah, I mean, we can get back to life. But I, but I think biggest block, like coming back to the original part of the conversation, sometimes the biggest block is people's understanding of pain. That, that's what gets in the road. That's the obstacle. They're, they're stuck um, with a concept of what pain is. They see it as a thing. Like it's a, yeah, if you see pain as a thing, you nounify it. I think I've just made up a word, but nounify it. As soon as you nounify, as soon as you make something a noun, mm. you give it a structure, you give it a permanence, you, you give it a, a physicality that does not deserve. And so you're stuck in that metaphor. And hmm. it's like not that. a, 
it's not a thing so the the definition of pain and you you used it yourself you said the experience it's an experience it's not a thing and and i would say that's sometimes the the biggest block it's a a category error where where people have learnt that pain belongs in this category that it's a thing and it's not it's not a thing it's, it's an experience it's it's like love love is an experience you can't mm. scan a body and point to love and equally you cannot look at a scan you cannot look at anything and say that person is in pain you, you, it's an experience um it, it runs out it plays out classically in osteoarthritis knee pain classically it's, you cannot look at a scan and say that person is in pain that person is in a lot of pain that person has a little pain um, because pain isn't in the body there's there's something going on in the body we can see that in a scan but you can have that exact same thing and not be experiencing pain so if we can get people to see pain as an experience that's this protective experience it's dynamic it's changeable it's it's changing moment by moment as well it, it, mm -hmm. it really isn't as permanent as people think um then they i think they're better set up to to start to look for okay well what can i do in my life you know and, and now we get out getting into diet and movement and mindset and thoughts and and stress you know what can i do in my life that can influence my brain and there's lots that there, there is a mountain of things that any person can do and when they feel stuck it's like they all the choices are taken from them and i think that sometimes people are stuck because the model that they've been given that you have pain you have back pain you have a slipped disc you have osteoarthritis you're, you're nanifying something that doesn't deserve to be a noun becomes structural rather than experiential exactly exactly and so you have anxiety no, it's, you, you've That's made a it one, isn't it you've made a thing uh, and it's not it, it's it is this fluid experience um uh, yeah. yeah it's it's so interesting that you're drawing a parallel with pain and anxiety anxiety being such a big word at the moment and i know we've got dsm definitions of what anxiety is and different types of anxiety and all of that however for the for the lay person without a diagnosis and, and disregarding diagnosis for a moment they label themselves as having anxiety when it it, it is more than anything else some kind of feeling that they don't appreciate or don't want or want to get past and, and i i find in my practice that one of the first things i attempt to do and i'm not going to say it works all of the time because nothing does is to have them let go of the word you know that's that's wonderful that you've come in with social anxiety or Let's put that to the side for the moment. It doesn't matter what we call it. How about we can just agree for a moment that it doesn't matter what we call it. And then when they can put that down, you were talking about opportunities before. Then they're, 
better prepared, they become a little bit more curious about what's possible. And I find that moment really, really interesting. I was talking to my cousin yesterday, who's a school teacher of 15 years. We were talking about psychology for school teachers, stress levels, a whole bunch of stuff in and around the education department, which was rather lovely. And we got to the point where I said, you know, my, my practice, because what I'm trying to do at the moment, I'm very interested in how there is a large number of teachers experiencing high stress situations. And like, what can we do for people who are in such an important position in the development of young people to help them do their job without burning out after five years and going and finding another job to do? So I talked to my cousin because he knows more about this than I do. But he, he asked about, like, what do you do? What can you provide? How is this going to be helpful to anyone? Brilliant question. He wants to know, why would I talk to you other than you being my cousin? What can you provide? And I said to him, after thinking about it, everyone who comes into my clinic, regardless of what they come in with or what they call it or what the word is, it all starts in the same place. And so after putting the word aside, it's, it's, it's how do we calm you down? How do we get your mind to stop that overcognition about what that is what this story is what's happening why it will keep happening where it came from let's just zip that down and then what and then what what if and he was ah oh. very analytical mind he's like oh that's that's interesting that you start everything in the same place i'm like if i came to your school and i don't I don't really care where your teachers are coming from, whether they're stressed or not stressed or anything. I know that in almost all cases, they can benefit from being able just to calm their cognition down. Yeah. So I can see the parallel there where you're talking about pain and anxiety. And then you talked about fatigue and depression that it seems to me that like the work seems to be similar. That, I think that is it. That is it in a nutshell because. Oh, wow. I got something right. Ooh, end of podcast. I'm gone. <laughs> and we're done. Um, so anxiety, what, what is anxiety? What, what is it? And, and often people go, well, anxiety is a thinking problem. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy into that. That's, that's, and, and people come to me and they go, I've got anxiety. And I go, how do you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Here's the diagnosis. And I go, well, tell me about your experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, because soon, as soon as someone says, look, you have anxiety, that's a concept. That's a concept. That's a cultural concept. Mm -hmm. And it'll, and people get stuck in that. Um, brings, brings stuff with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's you, you kind of make sense of what that means. And I, if you see anxiety like a thinking problem, then then I know who to see. I'm going to go see someone to fix my thinking. And, mm. and so, you know, you classically get something like cognitive behavioral therapy, which ha has been shown to get benefit there, but not all the time. It's, mm. It doesn't fully understand anxiety or it doesn't fully explain anxiety. It doesn't explain how someone with the experience of anxiety can change their diet and things are changing or someone can learn yoga or do breathing techniques and it changes. Well, how does that fit in with the thinking problem? And I would say anxiety is uh, an experience where the brain has inaccurately categorized a threat to something that's safe. And it's one of our protection mechanisms. 
and one of the symptoms or one one of the even even the word symptoms has a judgment behind it it's a sensation it has weight on it. it has weight yeah exactly exactly one of the experiences of anxiety are certain cognitions certain thoughts where are they coming from well i would argue that the brain provides cognitions to protect us so that the brain is producing these cognitions of you know what if this happens you know the catastrophizing these are protective responses just as you know that's a protective response running away is a protective response pain is a protective fatigue is a protective response and i would argue that anxiety is just another flavor of learned protection responses and mm -hmm. and really importantly so ditch the labels maybe it's a state of heightened arousal um okay well that's let, let's leave the stigma or, or the, the terms behind maybe it's heightened arousal um maybe it's something else because there's not one anxiety there's eight billion mm -hmm. forms of anxiety and even within one person yesterday's experience is totally different to today's experience as well so I think we, we limit ourselves when we say I have anxiety. I ditch probably ditch the label, um, but then also understand well what's going on, what, what is going on here, and I think if you see it as a thinking problem, you, you're limited. Mm. Yeah. And part of what I do is if the if the brain is detecting a threat, it's starting to you know. Um, prioritize certain brain functions about perception of threat and focus and fight or flight stress hormones yes. thinking your way thinking your way out of that is possible mm -hmm. but man that feels like the hardest way because stress hormones bias certain ways of thinking so yeah. so it's like where do you even start how do i think my way out of a out of a situation where it's almost like my thinking part of the brain is turned off. That's a metaphor, but it's not actually turned off, but certain um, networks are, are biased when you are stressed. And so thinking your way out of a stress, stressful situation is possible, but tough. The, the example I heard the other day was like, it's like yelling at the radio to be quiet. <laughs> I love that. There's no connection here. So yeah, yeah. How does that work? How, how do you do it? How do you do it? So um, I think there's the the insight that you know, I think people are coming at it from different ways. Um, when you are stressed, when you are doing stress, when you're having that experience of, of stress, mm -hmm. um, thinking your way, it's tough. So when we are stressed, you know, let's say the, the thinking part of the brain is turned off but if you think of fight or flight it's very much a body it's a the wiring between your brain and your body is still functioning so you still have you can still deliberately move your body in ways that then has a feedback mechanism to the brain to come in the back door to tell the brain just to calm down a little bit and so in the moment of stress you can breathe in a certain way, mm -hmm. making sure that your out breaths are longer than your in breaths, which trigger this, this our biology to send messages to the brain to calm down. It's and so you, okay. 
Yeah, exactly. So we can use our body to influence our mind. So mm -hmm. the work that I do is it really looks at how we can use our body, the, the interaction between our body and our mind to, to get out of these very stuck states where, where we're just we're just responding historically. We, we're just in an autopilot. Um, we're stuck. And so we have all of these ability to choose how we use our brain, our words, our thoughts, our memories, but also how we use our body, our posture, our facial expressions, our breathing, you know, where we're putting our eyes so that we can send messages to the brain to say that we're safe. So everyone's on the same team, you know, the brain and the body, everyone's on the same team. They're all trying to work together towards a, you know, a goal. Um, so we, we can use everything at our disposal to, to move forward. And so big tangent, but, but uh, it's not a tangent think, at all. It's perfect. I think it's an important one. I think it's an important one because it, it, it means you've got choices. That's what it comes down. You've got choices. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you and I know uh, the impact that breath work, for, for example, there's Amazing. how does breath influence up here? Well, we know it does. We, we know it does. How does exercise, how does diet, Mm -hmm. It all influences the brain, and so, um, yeah, choices. That, like, I'm big on choices, uh, and there are so many things that we can do. And maybe, maybe the biggest obstacle is people get stuck in this model that says you just have to manage it. it it's how it is. It's you got no choice. And part of that is delivered to us thanks to a, a medical model, like the, your. You know, the disease model mm. it's, it's in your dna or it's a chemical imbalance or it's you know it's genetic that that is code for there's nothing you can do about it and, and i don't buy into that and i don't think the research really supports that anyway no it's an interesting one I, I used to run into a lot of that in the gym especially in and around people with weight problems uh being told by doctors that there was something you know, there was a physical reason that they carried weight. And for a very small percentage of people, that's absolutely true. There is some kind of a dynamic with the way that the uh, metabolism is working. For, for example, sometimes there can be imbalances in chemicals that lead to weight gain. doesn't mean you can't do anything about it, but it predisposes a certain kind of, let's say, behaviour in and around the, the fuel and how it's used and stored we would have so many people come in saying that they can't lose weight because of this. Or maybe it had just been in the popular media. Maybe they'd actually seen their GP and the GP had alluded to it. They were the people that were really difficult to help. The people that understood that there was number one, there's work to do. It doesn't just happen. But most importantly, there are opportunities if you are open to those opportunities. And this is like some, the reason I've kind of changed tack from just doing hypnotherapy and moving into what I'm calling wellness coaching is that a lot of what you're talking about is exactly what I've reconnected with, that, that, that there are aspects of movement, breath work, diet, that all feeds into whatever the current experience is that may be problematic. That someone would come to someone for help for maybe we need to look outside of this current problematic area to find the solution that feeds into wellness as a whole. 
And that used to help. And it happened in the gym all the time. People would come to the gym because let's say they're overweight. And I've been told that if I exercise for 45 minutes a day, I won't be overweight anymore. Well, yeah, that's one part. So if you haven't been moving and you start to move, dramatic difference. And yet there's more. There are other things that you can do. Are you prepared to change this? Let's, let's see if we change one thing. I think you can, continuing with the environment in and around the gym, that a lot of people can be given so much information about all the things that they can change at once that it almost becomes too much and doing nothing becomes easier. Yeah. And perhaps that's true about pain. I'm not sure. I'm no expert in pain. I have seen that that is definitely a problem in and around what we now call mental health which for, for most people, the experience will be anxiety or depression or somewhere on sort of that spectrum. And so there's a lot of material that you can read. There's a lot of material that one can investigate. There are a lot of people that you can go to see. And it's almost easy to cherry pick what you're going to do and then say, well, I've tried everything. It doesn't work. Again, used to see that in the gym all the time. I tried this diet. Then I tried that diet. Then I started doing this cleanse. And then for six weeks, I went to this personal trainer, but that didn't work. And I did, you know, I bought this book. I bought that book. And all of this requires almost a dedication to a path to see it through. It doesn't have to be with one person, but like there are opportunities. Let's not just chop and change. Let's change one thing at a time and move along. And I'm off on a tangent, Ian. That's how it happens. No, it's not a tangent. It's what it's all about. Yeah, no, I, I think things can get very, got all these messages coming in mm-hmm. and, and, and they are all being um, taken on board with that person's understanding of what the problem is. Mm. And that's challenging. Like if you, so, so brains are trying to make sense of, of all everything. And, yeah. And, and I, I really think if, you know, understanding really helps just understanding really helps and and misunderstanding can be an absolute nightmare people just add okay well that they said turmeric is good for pain now hmm. that that concept is it doesn't make a lot of sense turmeric could influence the pain experience up or down or down <laughs> once you kind of have a, a different understanding of pain but someone you know comes from a particular current mindset and they think okay turmeric is good for pain they're taking turmeric nothing's happening do i need to take more turmeric you know well, mm. what's going on i'll take more turmeric well it didn't work but they tell me turmeric's good for pain so i'll keep my morning turmeric coffee while i take on this new thing and they try that and they try that and people just and they're too scared to get rid of something because I'm told it's good for pain. And suddenly people's lives are just so complicated with stuff with the fear of ditching it because the science has apparently said that it's good, good for me. And so um, it can get really complicated. So I, I think having an understanding of why that might influence you know, a situation is useful. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, I, I see people get just so overcomplicating things uh, unnecessarily, I think. Mm. If someone is 
experiencing pain right now, where would you recommend they start their, if they're open to a, a new way or a different way of, I'm trying to look for the correct word because it's not managing and it's not treating, it, maybe working with or working through or living with or, or you know, like, see even even for me the verbiage around this i know what i want to say but the language just isn't there to say it correctly yeah i i, I have that experience regularly that i'm i know that the words coming out of my mouth are not accurate but it's like i'm a translator i'm, I'm wanting to get something across to someone that it at least fit in so i know that sometimes my words are not in line with you know what, what the modern research will say but kind of a shorthand to maybe just allow them to understand just enough to go to the next step and the next step. So our, our language is, is incredibly limited. It's shorthand. It's all shorthand. It's all shorthand for something. Uh, so if someone was experiencing stuckness, you know, yeah, stuckness, I would say, and that, you know, that can be pain or fatigue or anxiety or depression or trauma or whatever. Um, Good first step. I, I, I would. Here's one, and this will hit for some people, and other people will hear this and go, "That's a load of shit." So, here's one. Um, ditch the label "good" and "bad." Ditch it, because there is nothing that we can do that doesn't have a, a time and a place. And so, fear is not good or bad it's it's something it's an experience it's something pain is not good it's not bad and i, and I hear if i hear even pain specialists go look there's good pain or there's bad pain <laughs> like rubbish no that wow that's wow. taking someone down a, a pathway I, like even acute pain and chronic pain don't make any sense in the understanding the current understanding of pain that they, they are labels that just keep people in an old in an old model so i would say ditch the the good and the bad because if you label something bad and, and i include in this negative emotions no such thing no it's it, it that experience is an attempt to keep you alive why would you call that bad you know i would just say is it appropriate for this present moment is it helpful so, for you right now Exactly, exactly. And you've got a brain that's constantly predicting and, and attempting and predicting and attempting. And um, thank you, brain. You know, it, it's not bad. It's just thanks, brain. Cool. Mm. Yeah, we're on the same side here. So thanks, brain. So I would say, if someone is open to ditch the label good and bad, um, you will, you will open yourself up to see things differently. Because if we label it bad, there's less freedom to be curious. You know, there's, we drop the shame, we, we drop the embarrassment, we drop the, we drop the fear, we can just go, huh, but this one sound, this is a, this is a tangent, maybe, maybe not. This one sound, I think is one of the most powerful sounds for humans. Huh, just a, huh, just this, this attitude of, huh, hmm. no judgment. It's just like, yeah, well, that that sound as well. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and that that range of sounds, which which kind of suggests, isn't that interesting? 
Yeah, and what is this here? Let, let's sort of like childlike curiosity. Yeah, like, like my curiosity. At, yeah, yeah, kids looking at bugs and going, Look at this spider. This spider has hairs. This spider has more than two eyes. This is this is extraordinary. It's blowing my mind. Yeah. Well, there's no limitation to be curious, but as soon as we call something bad, spider, bad, <clears throat> you know, suddenly our curiosities just, you know, it is, it is oh, it's so strange. Bad. I've I've been walking a lot in the Noosa National Park. I'm actually pointing to it, which is random because it's going to have no context for anyone Probably. watching yeah for you it's in a completely different direction there we go that's speaking about experience right there there's ex there's an example of it and two days two beautiful carpet pythons went across the track and and so i've posted videos on instagram and one of my friends from melbourne said i would have run the other way i'm petrified of snakes oh, isn't that interesting yeah they're petrified of the concept that their brain is coming up with yeah. and that stops uh -huh. them from being present and seeing this thing um yesterday um heading across to my wife's studio <laughs> massive carpet python right there on the doorstep if she'd opened the door she, she would have got quite a fright and i said oh, don't come out there's a snake here and she said oh i thought that was you banging around out there for the last half hour <laughs> No, it was this massive snake just sort of moving its way through. Uh, and so I'd kind of drag it out and put it in beside the house and, and head off to work. And then about half an hour later, I hear my son going, Hey, Dad, Dad. And I'm just listening to the tone, you know, is, is it Dad? But it's not that. It's not that because he hasn't learned that snakes are bad. Mm -hmm. So what he's trying to call me is that he's got this great photo of the snake that came up the stairs and into <laughs> towards the front door so he hasn't been he hasn't learned that snakes are bad mm. so snakes are neither good nor bad and and they are you don't have to be and i would say you don't have to be careful i don't think here's, here's a bold statement i don't think anyone ever has to be careful but be wise yeah. be wise so careful implies danger you know? just just be wise it's just a snake um yeah that, that opens up curiosity so why am i talking about snakes good or bad i just ditch ditch the labels that was my, that was my point the, the the other the other part of this whole snake dynamic was a few weeks before we'd seen a snake and taken a photo erica and i out on a walk and sent it to our family group chat so both my sister and my mum and my nan so that's a direct line. My, my, my sister, her mum and her mum all went, ooh, can you warn us next time I don't like snakes? Why? You, the three of them have literally had no experience of snakes. I would argue they have, culturally, they have. Yes, but that's a direct, direct experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. However, there's been stories about the, the this, Taipan bit this person and this happened and that snake in the Amazon was this big that it swallowed a whole goat and and therefore all of those things equals bad. Yeah. Okay. And, and that and that's that is why it's a biopsychosocial understanding of pain. No one gets to the age of fifteen without 
all of the, the cultural understandings of pain, the, the videos, the, the TV shows, the, uh, you know, a, a, a woman doesn't get to be able to give birth without hearing a thousand horror stories as mm -hmm. well. All of those, all of those go in. It's, it's a brain is taking that in. So uh, all information. Yeah. Yeah. It, mm. It's all a brain that's learning. It's learning. It's learning. Like comes down to snakes. What's our experience of snakes? It depends. Every individual is different and, and you can choose. You might've worked with people that have snake phobias, for example, you can do something about that. And mm -hmm. it's not that the brain is even responding to that thing in front of you. The brain is responding to the, the imagery and all the stuff, all the information, all the past experiences, all the past conversations. That is what it's responding to. The fear, it's neither good nor bad. It's, is it appropriate? to this moment. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Yep. Yeah. There's a red belly black snake. Don't step on it. That's good information. Yeah. yeah that's it. So we need fear. We, and ironically, we need pain. We need fatigue. We need sadness. We need upsetness. We need hopelessness. Now, all of these things we have labeled either good or bad. Yeah, which invalidates them. And they're all valid. Yeah, they are all important human experiences. They, yeah, um, we need them. Like, like if, if I said to someone, "There's an operation that's come out, or there is a pill that's come out, hundred percent success rate, no side effects. It's only ten dollars. Um, you will never feel pain again." Ooh, danger, danger. Yeah. Do you want this? Do, do you want to re, do you want to be pain free? And it's tempting, but you'd be you'd be dead. You know, it's, mm -hmm. We need it. Same applies to fear. The pain the, the, the pain thing's interesting because there are people who don't feel pain. And they don't and um, it's, injure themselves, break bones, do crazy things. It's detrimental to their existence. Yeah, and, and they don't last long no yeah so i've never met anyone congenital insensitivity to pain syndrome they go blind because they, they don't feel that there's something in their eye they get an infection they break bones we, we need we need pain we, we need fear we, we need all of it we just ideally have a brain that's able to turn them on at appropriate times mm. yeah and be okay with it when it comes up. Like the cognition needs to be okay with stuff when it comes up and not judge it, label it. I'm feeling this and I should be feeling that. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's a feedback mechanism. Like it's positive your brain, feedback. Yeah. 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 It's pain is pain. If you then add to it or, or kind of start to second guess and, and you, you bring into that all your concepts of what pain is, and what it means what it means yeah yeah people just stay stuck the idea of working with stuckness rather than working with a label of you know, what i am or what is happening to me i think there's some power to that because it it, 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 it decouples the perception of what the problem is yeah which in the way in the way I think about it, it's the perception of what the problem is. 
Yeah, so if you listen to the language, it's happening to me, mm-hmm. and instantly you're not a player. You, you've disempowered yourself. You, you're a, a victim of something that's happening to me. I, I think that's mm. that's not quite the, the place that you're going to make 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 change. It, it's something I have. Well, again, that I think that you've nanified it. That that's going to be problematic. Um, yeah, that, I, the way that I approach it is it's something that they are unconsciously doing that they're kind of unconsciously creating this experience and unconsciously is the key bit because if people don't realize that it's unconscious then they very quickly lead into blame and beating themselves up for for something that you know they didn't choose to be here but they could choose to do something to to move and i think stuckness is a great word it kind of yeah i really like it describes it well and you know the foundation of the brain is change it it is designed to change to adapt to to adapt and so if someone is stuck why is this why is there a a limit being put on neuroplastic change what is going on that the brain is not doing what it's designed to do Mm. and so you can look at well how do we facilitate neuroplastic change and there are lots of different ways there, there are so many different ways we just yeah and exercise that's your field well and truly so exercise amazingly simple it's so simple and the thing with pain and again this is going back to my gym days because we would have people who would come into the gym and they'd injured themselves somehow and then they'd seen a physical physical therapist a physiotherapist someone to help them do rehab whatever rehab was but that would get them from being broken and having had surgery or being injured and getting to a point of capability to move but give them nothing more they would come into the gym because the therapist had done their work, whatever that is, up to whatever point says, okay, you're, you're fixed. And we would have people come in and I'm like, okay, we can move now. Like, because you've done your little physio, and I'm not, I'm not knocking physiotherapists, I'm just talking about the model where they fit into this uh, process. Okay, let's, let's get you moving. And, let's let's see what you can do how, how about you step up and down on that box how about you squat how about you do these basic big movements that by the way you do all the time and you've done all of your life and you need to continue to be able to do and nine times out of ten you know 87 percent of statistics are made up on the spot but let's say nine times out of ten i'm i can't squat because i've been told i can't do this movement because ever we just need you to move and I am here to watch you move. I am a professional. I will make sure you don't do this movement incorrectly. And even if you do it incorrectly, you can't hurt yourself. It's not going to hurt you to do this movement. Now you you look now, someone gets their hip replaced. Off you go, get off the bed, go for a walk, like almost immediately start moving. Now, when you think about that, you're like, hang on a moment. They've cut someone's, they cut the side of someone's body open, packed some bone away, whacked in some metal, patched it all back up again, sewn them up, and then they're saying, get out and walk. Now, you would think that that's probably the time where you'd have a little bit of a rest, but 
the numbers show that you've got to get up and use it straight away. Now, if you can do that when you've just been hacked apart and a joint's been replaced and a fairly major joint at that, then it's amazing what you can do to move and how it will help. Sorry, uh, I'm up on my soapbox because this movement thing, like, it's, it's huge. I've got yeah. back pain. What do you do for a job? I, I sit in a desk all day. Oh, well, for how long? As long as I sit in the desk all the day. Everyone gets stiff and sore if you sit still. I mean, if I ask you to stand in the corner, you're going to get stiff and sore. If I ask you to lie down in the same position in your bed, you're going to get stiff and sore. You move all night naturally. So move. All right. And one of the obstacles to that is a belief that has been given by an authority figure that you are not safe. Mm. So, and, Come back and if to you that, are, it's really important. Yeah, if you're a gym owner, you know, no offense to a gym owner, but in a brain, we are deciding doctor has said this, and you've got an X gym owner saying move is part of our bias. Our brain kind of is biased towards oh, yeah. authority yeah. figures. And so um, Adam's telling me to move, but I've been told I'm not safe to move. I've been told I am fragile. That, that's a key piece of it. I am fragile. Yes. Uh, and so you can move, but you're moving with a brain that has a belief that says I am fragile. So that's now a piece of the, the puzzle that's playing in there. So um, exercise can move the body, but can also people can start to learn, oh, I'm not as fragile as I thought. But maybe the, biggest obstacle, maybe the biggest obstacle is that belief you know, that I'm, I'm fragile. So back to back pain. Um, now doctors are being trained to not send people for a back scan. So it's this movement now to, for GPs called the Choose Wisely program. So choice, so choose wisely. So they, they're being trained, um, don't send anyone for a back scan. Now, like 10 years ago, it was, well, to be on the safe side, we should send you off and get a scan and see what's happening in there. Just, you know, just to be on the safe side. If you're 30 years old, you'll find something in that person's back because that's how our body is. We, we are bioplastic, it, you know, it's internal wrinkles that you'll find stuff. Um, you'll find that in healthy people as well. So if someone goes, get a, goes, get a scan and they are told you have X that feeds back into the, am I safe question? And so you've now, increase that person's chance of long-term chronic back pain by giving them a diagnosis that you are fragile that you have to be careful but that thing that they found in the scans has probably been there for decades yet the pain experience only happened in the last one month what else is going on in that person's life that might have influenced the i am safe question and we know that mood is one of the biggest predictors of a back pain event oh for sure so, so what stress hormones do is they, they influence that I am safe question. So it might be lack of sleep. It might be poor diet because not a lot of food. If you're dieting, that's a stressor. But if you're eating lots of crappy food, that's another stressor. So stress isn't just working hard. Stress might be, it comes in many forms. It might be emotional stress. So all of those things have a, a biological impact on the body and the brain and suddenly you're there with 
a, a pain experience and then you're told that you're fragile you've got this thing like discs don't bulge they biologically discs don't bulge it's 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 a metaphor but people get stuck in the metaphor and now i'm fragile and i have to be careful no don't be careful be wise don't be careful be wise understand you know what's going on and you have got your fingers on so many levers so many levers of choice use them wisely Hmm. Choice, lots of choices. It's just such a beautiful way of looking at it because for exactly that reason, it opens up opportunity. Once we can individually get past judging, then that opportunity presents. That's beautiful. Yeah. when you are stuck by definition no choice there is no choice here and as soon as you have a choice you're not stuck there's an option that the brain starts to operate differently with uh, with choice um one thing they often talk to my clients about is you know the brain is scanning constantly scanning and it's scanning the external environment and the internal environment, like all the messages coming from the brain, the brain's constantly scanning and it's categorizing things as a threat. And that's its primary job. It's to protect. So it's, it's categorizing things as a, a threat, but it could equally categorize that exact same input, either external or internal, as a challenge rather than a threat. And suddenly the brain is operating differently or it could go one extra step and start to see something as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different response. So, is exercise like you know, back pain? Is exercise a threat? Is it a challenge, or is it an opportunity? Just how you're seeing that will start to influence how the brain responds when it's mm-hmm. in the presence of you know a body that's moving. And and I think we can label things so that things become a threat unnecessarily when actually they're an opportunity so people's labels and diagnoses all their understandings or their beliefs just makes all these safe things or essential things a threat and they're not a threat they're, they're actually in in another category they're in the category of opportunity but it's where people get stuck Yeah, a million and one questions running through my head at the moment. It's a lot to ponder about that. I think it's really powerful. It, it's um, it's lovely that we're talking about pain in in a in a greater wellness context. We're not labelling it as psychological. We're not labelling it as physical. We're we're seeing how it fits into the experience of life. And when yeah, what I'm seeing from that is. If I can understand pain that way, then a lot of these other, let's call them challenges that pop up in life can be seen in the same way. It's a challenge now. I love, and I love the three things. What did you say? Is it a, an opportunity, a, a challenge, challenge or a threat? Yep. Yep. And, and you can deliberately shift. You can deliberately train yourself to see a particular 
thing as an opportunity rather than a mm. threat might require some change in perspectives. Um, a bit of mental gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. Unlearning to learn something different. And, and I think one thing that becomes useful, if you think, it, like, is this thing, is, is exercise a, is it a threat or is it, a, is it an opportunity, is it a challenge? One thing that I think is so important is, does this person, I guess I'm, I'm now thinking about my, my work when someone comes to me, does this person have a really clear image of what they want? Are they really clear on that? Is it, is it something that is going to be their, their driving force to, to make change? Um, because if they are, if they're really clear on what they want, then their brain is more open to be able to go, okay, this is an opportunity to get towards that. This is an opportunity to get towards that. So it's this, this forward focus, whereas a lot of people, um, when they are stuck, their focus is what they don't want. Now, you know, I don't want this pain. Okay, but you've got a brain that's protecting you through pain. And to get your brain to drop the, the guard a little bit, it needs something more appealing. It kind of needs something to, you know, to drop that protection mechanism. So mm -hmm. if, if anyone's out there listening to this, I think a, another good first step, <laughs> probably got a, another good first step, get really, 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 really clear on what you want mm. really yeah. clear and and look at it get really clear because sometimes people think they're being clear about what they want but they're actually telling you what they don't want and, and that is, they are different locations <laughs> so they you know, different tangents and different motivations like this this avoidance moving away from or attraction moving towards yeah stick carrot kind of it does. It, it, it leads to a different kind of thinking, a different kind of action. I would even suggest that, that beliefs in and around what's possible change when you can see the opportunity. One might become more optimistic about what, what's available rather than this is how I am and it will never change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are, you, are you operating by fear? or something different. And if you focus on what you don't want or avoidance, it, it's all a, it's a fear based brain. Kind of get out of that to get a brain to, to look for opportunities to opportunities to move closer to those things that I'm, that I'm wanting to move into. And now I know you sorry, you go, I'll ask a question about it. Uh, well, if you're seeing that these things as protection mechanisms, I think um, I think we often think that the brain's job is to think and the brain's job isn't to think. I think the brain's job is to protect and to, to feed and, and flourish. And, and um, it, it's more than just a thinking thing. Thinking is one of the things that protects us. So it's, it's something that the brain can, it's an experience that the brain can produce. Um, but if, so if you're seeing this, the brain as its primary job to protect us, we can go through experiences, chronic stress, trauma, where our protection mechanisms just sort of crank up a little. Dropping our protection mechanisms 
takes a little bit of work. And the, the metaphor, or the, yeah, the metaphor I often think about is when 9-11 hit, our protection mechanisms went up. It, it was an event where our protection mechanisms went up. So now going through an airport is harder. It takes more time. We are safer. Why don't we drop it? Well, it's scary. It's scary to drop our protection mechanisms because we've had this big emotional thing that's happened. And our jobs, our brain's primary job is to protect. So how then do we you know, work with our own brain to, to drop protection mechanisms? And, and if you think about airports, how would we do that? How would we get to a point where we are willing to take certain risks to drop our protection mechanisms? It's because we want something else more. I want freedom. I want ease to move through the airport. Mm. And so it's until we, if, if we're able to go, look, this is what I want. I want this so badly. I want to be able to freely move in and out. Um, yes, there's some risks, but I'm willing to take those risks because this is what I want. Then we drop our protection mechanism. So it's it's the same with, with the brain. We can go through experiences and our protection mechanisms crank up it's scary to to drop that but we can mm. but it requires clarity on what do i want how badly do i want that am i willing to take some risks in order to get that so first step i would say getting really 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 clear about what you want it's not the whole piece but it's a it's a good start it's a great place to start yeah, for so many reasons that we could dig into for another hour and a half. Why and how that actually works in such a situation. Yeah, powerful. I love it. What I wanted to ask you before was, I know you have a process that you take people through if, if they choose to work with you in and around predominantly pain, as I understand it, maybe fatigue, stuckness okay so let's okay let's yeah. there's your branding ian cleary stuckness remover remover but I, I i there you go i should go into marketing um so you have you have a process that you take people through and i and i know that you have sort of some um pre-entry requirement for someone to get into your program because they need to be ready for the program it makes perfect sense or else it's a waste of everyone's time when people start to understand this stuckness in a new way and they start to learn what the brain's doing and what the experience is all about and what the opportunities are what kind of a time frame is there for people to start realizing results and i know there's not Every, everyone's different, but I'm just trying to get a feel for what's available to people because most people wouldn't even know this kind of opportunity exists to see someone like yourself who, who can run them through a process, a new way of understanding and, and, and have the opportunity and the potential for this to be different. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I hope that's a clear enough question that you can actually answer because well, I know that there are variables. It's a question I get asked many, many times a week. Mm. How, how long? How long? Of course. And, well, it's the and, big one, isn't it? When's this going to happen for me? Yeah. 
Um, there's no way anyone could answer that. When you, when you have an understanding of the brain and all the pieces that, that are playing out here, no one can answer that. Um, and if anyone answer. does give an answer, yeah, well, if anyone does give that answer, I would be going, oh, they have a very different understanding of the brain and the body than I do if they are coming up with, with a, you know, an answer like that. But what I can say to people um, is that the brain is, is changeable in nature, that this is not a healing journey. You have to get out of that mindset because that mm. is, you're in the old school. You're kind of going, okay, well, a broken bone takes six weeks. So how long have I got, doctor? I'm going, it's not how it works. So this is not a healing journey. This is a retraining. So there are many pieces to this. This is um, you know, intention, focus, repetition. How long does it take to learn German? Well, how can anyone give you an answer to that? Um, it depends. It depends on a lot of things. Uh, it, so, it, it, so that's one piece of it. I, I can't give an answer. Um, I can say that the brain is highly trainable. Um, I can point out that the person is seeing this in terms of um, thinking of pain and fatigue and anxiety as a, as a solid thing. I can, I can explain to them that no one is ever in constant pain, even though they will plead, they will, they'll go, I am in constant pain. I'll go, well, when you go to sleep, your brain is turning off the experience. You've got all the wiring right now to have a different experience and you are having those experiences regularly already. So you've got, it's not like an absence of anything. And so with that understanding of pain as an experience, by the end of the three day training, people have often had experiences that shock them, that, that, that it is such a, it's going against their prediction of what, what mm. should happen. They're going, oh my God, I, I have walked all this way and I haven't done this in 10 years. Um, it shocks them. And there's something really powerful to that because that shock means my model of understanding is off because you know, there are things possible that I, I didn't even think was possible. <laughs> and, you know, that gives people Beautiful. back a... There's control that comes back with that. There's hopefully understanding. So within three days, um, most people have had experiences that changes them, that they recognize that there's, an, there's a level of influence here that I didn't think was possible. Uh, and I, I see people you know, that at the end of a training, they would say, I'm well, I'm well. And I go, Ooh. <laughs> just, you know, so what they are saying is I am now not experiencing that thing, that stuckness that I came here with. And I go, fantastic. Now, you've got a brain that's going to move through the world in different contexts and different environments, and it will be running on an autopilot. So the skills that you're learning are kind of stay with it because the brain will might you might get into a situation where the brain jumps back to a historical way and, and tries to protect and so 
once you added that that healing model people put all the skills into place and just keep training their brain in context around certain people and locations and places and times and situations so they're they're retraining their brain this is how i want to be rather than this so that's a long-winded answer i know um the, the change can happen quickly like you will have had experience like hypnotherapy you'll have had experiences where it's like boom it's like wow that's amazing um that shows how quickly things uh, are moving and, and changing and success for me then is um how can we automate that how can we have this this brain being able to move through their their world in a way where they're not you know this inappropriate fear fatigue pain stuckness um is showing up and yeah and, that, and it is amazing how you know the brain runs on autopilot so um I've had people, let's say, 10 years with a chronic pain condition. Uh, a week after the training, it's gone. But you know, they're not, you know, not experiencing pain anymore in, in those contexts. And it's tempting to go, I'm cured or I'm, you know, I'm whatever. And then I've, I've had people then come in for, like I run refresher courses. I've had people come in, it's been two, three years, um, no experience of inappropriate pain responses, um, you know, pain, inappropriate pain experiences. They're living a life they love. They're, they're just loving it. And they're wanting to re-engage with all the material and, you know. And I've had people come in and sit in at one of my clinics and they're sitting there and they're listening to my voice and they might be sitting in the same room as they did their original training. Maybe I'm even wearing the same shirt that I was wearing <laughs> in the training or something. And the brain is constantly going, what do I normally do here? What do I normally do here? And I've, I've had people start to do a pain experience in the context of that room. Fascinating, fascinating. But hopefully they are, they've understand pain well enough to be able to go, huh, Ian, <laughs> No fear, because hurt does not equal harm, hurt equal harm. And so they're able to go, huh, cool, thanks, brain, but not today. And they, and they then have these skills to be able to get out of that experience and retrain the brain. So, yeah, how long does it take? I think... Um, it's really useful to understand pain. But then they are skills, they are concepts for life. I love the saying, teach principles and the, the methodology will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. So you know, once people understand, understand pain, understand fatigue, you know, understand, understand that all pain is pain. All pain is pain. People go, oh, well, my pain ends different. You know, well, maybe, but um, I don't think so. Uh, oh, my fatigue is different. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Um, once they get the principles of it, then they can they can do the work that's going to get them unstuck. Um, last uh, last Monday, um, a paper came out, a peer reviewed paper, looking at uh, 
So the, the, the work that I do is called the lightning process. So this paper came out showing uh, the effectiveness of the lightning process on young adults with post-chemo fatigue, post-chemotherapy fatigue. Fatigue is fatigue. It's not a running out of batteries. It's not. It's not a running out of batteries. It's, it's one of our protection responses. And if you treat it like a running out of batteries, you go down a particular pathway of I am fragile. I have to be careful. And you get caught in the management mindset. So just it's extraordinary. This is post-chemo fatigue. These, these young, young people have survived cancer. They've gone through chemotherapy. They've survived cancer. And they have a brain that is still protecting them through fatigue. And on average, it was um, seven years after. They're still post-chemo fatigue. Um, uh, it's so these people have survived cancer and they're, they're kind of they're ready to go and their brain has gone through an experience where they are their brain is still protecting through fatigue and they turn their lives around and, and it's from understanding having a different understanding of fatigue it's, it's profound and so once you have that um yeah you've, you've got all these choices yeah mm. Yeah, let's not open up the fatigue uh, tin right now. That'll be a that's that's another one. It's not, I was going to say it triggers people, but I don't know. I don't. That, that would be the wrong language. It's just a, a sensitive subject because so many people are challenged by it in the same way. It, it's a it's unhelpful in the same way that pain's unhelpful. It just gets in the way of life. Gets in the way of other whatever other is for that person. Yeah. I think I think I told you that I, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago I got I got hit with something I don't know what it was I, my assumption is some something kind of viral but I don't know something popped up and I was I would call it fatigue for want of a better term just so I can communicate what it felt like but it was like no juice for almost two weeks and the biggest thing for me to come over wasn't that it was happening it was just to be okay with that it was happening and use that as some information to maybe take some downtime, maybe be kind to myself, maybe investigate what it was all about rather than just judge it as being bad and get stuck being shitty about, let's call it fatigue. And when it went away, it went away. It was gone. Like, okay, I'm not fatigued now. I have days where I don't sleep very well and I feel tired, but I wouldn't put that in the same category. So that's an interesting experience just to be able to sit and be with something and not actually have to have it be bad. Yeah. Um, yep. yeah. Um, the, the pain world, I think, is really moving ahead. And, and it's, yeah, it's moving ahead. And there are still some people stuck in some old, I would say they're stuck in old models of understanding pain. When it comes to fatigue, it's lagging behind the pain world in, in an understanding of what's going on here. And it's, it is, um, it's a highly emotive topic because if you reference the brain to someone, their brain goes, oh, you're saying it's all in my head. You're saying it's not real. And I'm going, that isn't what I'm saying. Let, let me try again because I, I have failed in getting across you know, what I'm trying to get across here. Um, so I would say fatigue is not a, you know, a running out of juice. So I would say it's, it's not a running out of batteries. It's the brain jamming on the brakes. And 
it feels like a running out of if the car is stopped and it's real but what is the problem if it's if it's a running out of batteries if that's an understanding and then you'll go down a particular pathway like rest and and i i've seen people that have been resting for 10 years they've been bed bound well wow when when and the doctors go well just give it time well how much time i can't tell you well i i don't think it is a running out of batteries Mm. Um, when we get a virus you know that crushing fatigue that, that people feel it's tempting to say the virus is making me tired but I would say neurologically what's happened is the brain has detected a threat. You know, a, a th- there's a threat here and it's in our best interest to stay still so our immune system can, can work with it. So mm-hmm. one of our protection mechanisms is this crushing fatigue to get us to stay still. So we can have real crushing fatigue and also enough biological energy to walk a half marathon at the same time. And so they can, they can coexist. But as soon as someone thinks fatigue means no energy, then, then that then starts to, to influence how they approach the, the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, pain, fatigue, I, I work with both. There's a great story of um, one of the people that have trained me in pain education, wrote a book, uh, Explain Pain. And uh, he tells a story of someone coming to him with chronic fatigue syndrome and saying, look, I experienced chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. And he probably would have rolled his eyes because the, the overlap is something like 80%. He said, no, yeah, yeah, I've, I have heard about it. And she said, is there anything you can offer, offer me? And he said, yeah, sure. I, I got just a thing. And he pulls out a copy of his book, Explain Pain, and gives it to her. And she went, oh, no, 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 sorry, no, I, I don't have any pain. Like, luckily, I don't have any pain. I've just got this crushing fatigue. And he said, you know, that's only half the gift. Here's the second half of the gift. Every time you see the word pain, I want you to cross it out and write the word fatigue. Oh. So everything that I've said about pain, I'd say also applies to fatigue. It's, it's a protection mechanism. Um, it's real. And it's changeable. And it's learned. It, it's this you know, learned response to a threat and we can do things to change our brain. We, we, if we've had breakfast and we're having good meals, we've got biological energy, yet we are still stuck in real fatigue, we've got options there. And, and sometimes the, the stuckness is the belief. You know, what is this thing? And for some people, when I say that, what they've heard is Ian is saying it's all in my brain. Ian is saying I'm crazy. Ian's saying it's not real. And I'm going, it's as real as when you've got a virus and it's crushing fatigue. It's as real as that. It's just back then it was generated from the brain to protect you and it was appropriate. And if it's chronic, it's been going for you know, more than three months, it's now no longer appropriate. And, and you've got some choices because it was generated from you all along. It wasn't the virus that stole your energy. It was your brain trying to help you through fatigue. Neither good nor bad. It's just, is it appropriate to this moment, to this, what's going on? Yeah. Beautiful. So, 
Yeah, look, that, that, that understanding of things opens it up to, it's not just, I don't just work with chronic pain conditions. So, you know, that's fibromyalgia, chronic back pain, migraines, complex regional pain syndrome, um, but it's post-viral fatigue syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, post-traumatic stress disorder. So the, an event has gone through and the, the brain and body is still protecting anxiety, depression. If you drop the categories and, and the labels, I, I would say they are all a, a, a brain and a nervous system that's doing its best to protect us with what, what it's been given from you know, everything. Uh, and you have options. If, if you're stuck in those responses, you've got options because that's that at the heart of the brain is change so there are things that we can do if you've got a brain then you can change um, but it is work it's deliberate it needs to be you know it's focused deliberate work it's not always easy but if you've got that clear vision of why you're doing it, it's like going to the gym it's tough it's getting up early it's you have to give up some stuff to go to the gym why would anyone give up stuff sweat pay money you know, feel horrible, hurt, because they've got a vision. They, they've got something. And uh, just as we are neuroplastic, we are bioplastic. Our bodies can change as well. We, we, I think we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because we've got this clear vision of, of something and, and we work at it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Mate, let's leave it there. And um, I'll put some links in the show notes so people can find you and um maybe i forgot we were on a podcast <laughs> that's the beauty of it see this is the whole point mate we're just having a chat and Hello, whatever world. comes up comes up and the world can whoever in the world chooses to listen again choice they can and it's like there's a wealth of information here this is scratching my own itch. So this helps me understand all of these mechanisms better. If someone else gets something out of it, great, but I'm done. I've got my stuff. Cool. Just as my nose starts to tickle and decides to say, look, you better end this podcast now before you start sneezing like a crazy man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Great to see you. Great to hang out. Hello world. Now that I'm in podcast mode. <laughs> Uh, and good goodbye, world. Until next time. Until next time. Oh, yeah. See you, mate.